Uh, this offering is being finished up. I'd like to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, as we make our way uh, through this letter that the Apostle Paul penned in the mid-50s A.D., uh, we uh, come to the conclusion of a lengthy section where Paul's been addressing the topic of worship. And so I'd like to begin reading in verse 26 down to the end of the chapter. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, beginning in verse 26. What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. If any speak in a tongue, let there be only two, or at most three, and each in turn, and let someone interpret. But if there is no one to interpret, let each of them keep silent in church and speak to himself and to God. Let two or three prophets speak, and let the others weigh what is said. If a revelation is made to another sitting there, let the first be silent. For you all can prophesy one by one, so that all may learn and all be encouraged. And the spirits of prophets are subject to prophets. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. As in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. For they are not permitted to speak, but, but should be in submission, as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Or was it from you that the word of God came? Are you the only ones it has reached? If anyone thinks that he is a prophet or spiritual, he should acknowledge that the things I am writing to you are a command of the Lord. If anyone does not recognize this, he is not recognized. So, my brothers, earnestly desire to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But all things should be done decently and in order. And the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of obedience for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, it's been said that in the beginning, God created man in his image, and mankind has been repaying the favor ever since. You see, this tendency for us to conform God into our image is perhaps shown most clearly in the way in which we worship him. Rather than being content with worshiping God the way in which he is commanded in his word, we insist on worshiping God the way we want to. Why? Well, because it makes us feel good. You see, this tendency to turn worship away from God and inward, that is, we worship him because we like the way we enjoy this type of worship, ultimately is not worship, but idolatry. Because you're conforming God into your own image. And ultimately, that's what I think the Corinthians were doing, in that they uh, were a church turned in on itself. Each and every person were treating worship as an opportunity for them individually to shine. It was showtime. 
And they were all trying to outshine each other, speaking over one another, climbing over one another for the spotlight so that they could build themselves up. But as we've seen in the past several chapters where Paul has been addressing the topic of of orderly worship, he says everything ought to be done out of love for others with the result of them being built up. So while idolatry is all about you and your feelings and what you get out of it, true, heartfelt, spirit-led worship is all about others and building them up. But I hope we've been able to appreciate the fact that we don't have to choose between vibrant, heartfelt, spirit-led worship and also an orderly, intelligible, even an intellectually stimulating service. Both of those things go together. That's why Paul says the gift of prophecy was better than the gift of tongues because prophecy resulted, it, it was readily understood, people were instructed by it, and were being built up. And so, as we will see, only when we worship God with both our spirit as well as our mind are we going to be in, experience fruitful worship, and then God will be glorified. And so, as Paul wraps up his section on worship, uh, we come now to uh, him wrapping things up in verse 26 when he, when he says, What then, brothers, when you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation. You see, the Corinthians were not lacking in their enthusiasm or their willingness to participate in worship. Each and every one of them were really excited to go to church on Sunday, and each and every person felt like they had something to bring, whether it be a hymn, literally the word there is psalm, or a lesson, or a revelation. Everyone felt like they had something to contribute. But the problem, as I said, is that they were treating worship like showtime, each trying to upstage each other for their moment to shine. And it was resulting in total chaos. No one was being built up. It wasn't edifying. And so that's why Paul says, let everything be done for building one another up. You see, Paul repeats this refrain over and over, that everything done in worship is not for personal gain but for building up the whole church, the body of Christ. And that's only possible, as we'll see, if things are done in an orderly manner. And so Paul begins by, by regulating the gift, the exercise of the gift of tongues, which, as we saw last week, was a gift of, uh, for somebody to be able to speak a language, a known, real, spoken language that is unknown to the speaker. And so Paul says, if people, have, if, if people have the gift of tongues or the gift of languages, let two, if, notice that he says, if people have this, only let two or at the most three. You see, in stark contrast to the scenario he envisioned in verse 23 where everyone would be speaking in tongues and an outsider would come in and say, you guys are out of your mind. Paul says, if somebody's going to speak in tongues in public worship, let two, or at the most, three, and only then, and he goes on to say, they should take their turn. That is, they shouldn't be speaking tongues all at the same time, resulting in total chaos. And so if somebody's going to speak in tongues, and only two or three, in their turn, Paul then says, then let someone interpret. You see, the gift of interpretation, would, which would be translating or putting into intelligible words, the words that were spoken, 
That was a gift that was separately given and, and gifted by the Holy Spirit to certain individuals. Back in chapter 12, Paul lists the gift of, to- of various tongues, as well as the gift of the interpretation of those tongues. Now, that could be given to the tongue speaker. That is, they would be, they'd have the ability to speak a language that they don't know, and then through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to interpret that. Or it could be given to somebody else. But the, the interpretation is vitally important for tongues in public worship. It was necessary to make tongues intelligible to the listeners and thus was required in order to build one another up. We've already seen that last week, how Paul says, you know, if if we don't know what you're saying, it won't be fruitful. And so Paul insists that if tongues will be done in worship, someone must interpret. And if not, if there is no one who says, if there's no one there who has the ability to interpret, Paul says, keep silent in the church. Keep silent. The tongue speaker should refrain. Now, it's interesting that Paul could say that the tongue speaker should keep silent because typically our association with tongues is that it is some sort of spontaneous, uncontrollable outburst. But that's not the sense you get from 1 Corinthians 14. Rather, it is something that is like prophecy is under the control of the speaker. They have the ability to speak in tongues, but they also have the ability to remain silent in the church. Well, having addressed the the topic of tongues, he then goes on to address the topic of prophecy, where he gives instructions in verses 29 through 32. Now, again, as we saw with prophecy, this wasn't just uh, this idea of foretelling certain events, like I'm going to know what happened next week or I know what you're thinking, it's prophecy was not just foretelling, but also forthtelling. The gift of prophecy, especially during the time of the formation of the, the writing of the New Testament canon, was a gift of inspired speech where people were able to proclaim the word of God and apply it to their life. As Paul said back in verse 3, Uh, The one who prophesies speaks to the people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. So again, think of prophecy not just as foretelling future events, but think of prophecy as inspired pastoral preaching, proclaiming the word of God to his people and applying it to their lives. Well, again, like he did with tongues, so also here Paul uh, regulates in in an orderly manner, the gift of prophecy. He says, let two or three. Now, you notice, he regulates it, but not as strictly as tongues. He he thinks prophecy is more fitting for public worship, but nevertheless, he says, only let two or three do this. And he says that two or three should uh, prophesy, of course, each in their own turn, not all at the same time, but in their turn. And then, he says, let others weigh what was said. This word wane has the idea of sifting. If you're, you know, going through and you're sifting things out uh, or separating one thing for another. And, and it has the idea of discerning, being able to tell the difference between what is true and genuine and what is false. You'll notice that even during a time of extraordinary revelation where these revelatory gifts were being given, even then everything must be judged 
according to the word of God. Why? Well, because not everyone who claims to be speaking for God is actually speaking for God. We saw this in the Old Testament where, where Jer- the prophet Jeremiah had to compete with all sorts of false prophets. God says, I, I didn't tell them to run, but they ran. They're going off and saying their own message. Well, so also in the New Testament, the, the, new, the new covenant believers needed to use the word of God already delivered to weigh, to determine, to sift through whether what is genuine and what is false. As Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5, do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Likewise, John says in 1 John 4, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. We have to be like the Bereans who receive the word, but also Judge it according to God's word to see if, in fact, it is true. Now, we might ask at this point, when Paul says, let others weigh what is said, we might ask, who are these others? I think our tendency as 21st century Americans in a democratic society would automatically assume, well, it's everybody. The whole church gets to weigh and determine whether the prophecy is from God or not. I don't think that's the case. Even though Paul doesn't specifically say who it is that should do this weighing, this discerning after a prophet speaks, I think we are safe to assume it would be those who are particularly gifted with biblical knowledge or gifted with the ability to discern the spirits. You see, just as tongues had the corresponding gift of the interpretation of tongues, back in chapter 12, Paul lists the corresponding gift to prophecy is the ability to discern spirits. And so there would be those who would be be particularly gifted by the Holy Spirit in both knowledge and discernment to be able to tell whether somebody standing up and prophesying in church was actually speaking for God or not. And by the way, this would be a position of authority within the church. Not just anybody would be able to do it. Well, getting back to uh, this orderly uh, prophesying, Paul goes on to say, if revelation is made to another, then the first person should be silent. See, not only should the prophets subject their discerning, subject their prophecy to this discernment process, but they also need to yield the floor to others if somebody has something else to say. In other words, they can't just drone on and on and on. If they've said their piece and there's another prophet, the first prophet needs to sit down and Paul assures them, You can all prophesy one by one. But again, we see this command for somebody to be silent. The prophet needs to speak, and then he needs to shut his mouth and let the discernment happen and let others speak in their place. Which, by the way, I don't know about you, but the impression that I get is that this would be somewhat tedious for a worship service. To, to have to judge whether what is being spoken is, in fact, the word of God or not. And it makes me very grateful for the completion of the canon of Scripture. We can know beyond a shadow of a doubt that when I read the words that I read for you at the beginning, that that was the very, that, the, that not just was, but is the very word of God speaking to you in the present tense. We might desire to live in a time when people are getting these extraordinary revelations, but I think we have something much better here the once and for all completed word of God. Everything we need to know for life and godliness is right here. 
And so Paul goes on and he assures them that they can all prophesy each in his order, one by one, not talking over each other, not trying to upstage one another, but that they can speak the word of God to the people with the end result that all may learn and all be encouraged. Notice again, the emphasis isn't on you, it's on everybody. The whole body being built up. That's what Paul means when he says, let everything be be done for the purpose of building up. And again, this command for Paul to tell the prophets to be silent uh, is, uh, is, is clear, a clear indication that prophetic inspiration did not involve this out-of-body, ecstatic experience where they're in this trance and they can't control themselves. But Paul very clearly says, no, the spirits of prophets are subject to the prophets. They are rational. They're self-composed. They have the ability to speak and they, they have the ability not to speak. Once again, everything's being done in an orderly way. Well, why? Why is it so important? Is is Paul just some sort of control freak? Is he, I mean, clearly he was Presbyterian because he wants everything being done orderly. Why is he so concerned about things being done in an orderly manner? Why can't he just let us hang loose a bit, cut loose, let her hair down? Well, it's because of the God we worship. Look what he says there in verse 33. God is not a God of confusion, but a God of peace. You see, the way in which we worship God is directly tied to the nature of God himself. We worship God the way we do because he is the God who he is. He's not a God of confusion or chaos. He's a God of order and peace so that everyone can be built up. In the same way that we saw back in chapter 12, the fact that we being many are one, this unity in diversity is a direct cor- cor- directly correlates to the fact that God is one in many. There's one Father, one Son, one, one Spirit, and they, uh, the, the, it reflects the Trinity. As Paul said back in chapter 12, now there's a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit. There's a variety of services, but the same Lord. There's a variety of activities, but it's the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, unity and diversity, the nature of God being reflected in the people of God, giving their worship back to him. So it is with here, the Spirit does not inspire confusion or chaos, but rather he brings order and peace and harmony. Think about the Spirit's work in the very beginning. As God spoke the world into existence and it was this chaotic mass, an uninhabitable mass, a a watery surface. What happens? The spirit hovers over the face of the deep and he brings what was chaotic into order. He brings what was inhabitable into something that everyone could live in. So it is with the spirit as he inspires worship, it's orderly and it builds up. And so this disorderly worship that was happening at Corinth or anywhere else that we see disorderly worship is not inspired by the Holy Spirit, but rather it's inspired by man. Paul goes on in uh, the second half of verse 33, which I think it's better to include when Paul says, as in all the churches of the saints, that should be included with what follows rather than what preceded it. He's already reminded the Corinthians that they were not autonomous. They were not on their own. They were not free to write their own rules and do whatever they wanted. 
but rather that they were part of the church universal. And so they were to act in a way that all the churches were to act. He said that back in chapter 7. He said it even at the very beginning of the letter when he addressed them. He said this in chapter 1, verse 2, to the church of God that is in Corinth, those, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, it's amazing that he could say that of these people, you're sanctified. And then he says, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Paul has to remind the Corinthians that they're not autonomous. They're not free to write their own rules. They're not free to act as they like, but they need to fall in line with all the rest of the churches. And so here is a particular rule that the Apostle Paul applies with regard to women in the church. And he says there in verse 34 that as in all the churches, the women should keep silent in the churches. Maybe at this point, when I was reading the passage to you, you began to think, oh no, Paul, you've crossed the line there, buddy. You're letting your first century patriarchal male chauvinism come through. Here's a spill of the pen where we are free to disregard what he says here because we all know that that's not true. And even some commentators, many commentators, even otherwise conservative commentators would suggest Paul couldn't have written this. And even though they don't, they don't have a shred of evidence, they suggest somebody else must have written this and, and somehow it got stuck into our copy of 1 Corinthians. But clearly Paul can't mean what he says when he says women ought to keep silence. That's not nice. Did Paul hate women? Did he seek to sideline them and, and, and suggest that they have no part in either, either the service or worship of the church? Well, clearly not. Clearly from other places, in, not just in his writings, but even in 1 Corinthians, we see how Paul speaks very highly of women and how he speaks of how they ought to use their gifts in the service of the church. Think of, of the way he speaks of Priscilla and, and her husband Aquila or the way he speaks of Phoebe in, in uh, Romans chapter 16. She's a servant in the church. So clearly Paul didn't hate women. Clearly Paul saw the fact that women had gifts to contribute to the church and clearly Paul felt that they had the ability to speak in church. So if that's the case, what does he mean here when he says uh, that women ought to be silent in the churches? Well, I think what he's doing is, as just as he did back in chapter 11, he's insisting that things be done in an orderly manner. And part of doing things in an orderly manner is respecting God's authority structure that he has established in creation. So part of submitting to God is submitting to those that God has placed over us in positions of authority. This is what Paul means in Ephesians chapter 5 when he says you ought to be submitting to one another in the Lord. Not that we all submit to one another, that's total chaos, but that we submit to those that God has put in authority over us. As then he goes on to say, wives, submit to your husbands, children, obey your parents, slaves, obey your masters. Submitting to those that God has put in authority over you. And so, likewise, in chapter 11, Paul spoke about how women ought to pray or prophesy with a head covering, showing that they had a symbol of authority over their head, showing that they were submitting to, the, to their husbands. And so what does Paul then mean when he says women ought to keep silent in church? Well, obviously, it can't mean total silence 
Because he's already spoken back in chapter 11 favorably about how women can and should pray or prophesy in church, albeit with the proper head covering. And so clearly he's not uh, saying utter silence. But what does he mean? Well, I think the context is key. You may have noticed that this is not the first time Paul has, has said that somebody needs to be silent in church. Has he, have you noticed, do you recall how he said back in chapter 28 that if there's no one to interpret the tongues, then the tongue speaker should be silent? Same Greek word. Likewise, for the prophet who's already said his piece, who needs to yield the floor to the other prophet who has a word from the Lord, he too should remain silent. And presumably, the prophets also would remain silent during the time of discernment, during the time in which others would weigh whether what was said came from God or not. And that, I think, is the key to understanding what Paul means when he says that women ought to remain silent. While women were free to pray or prophesy in church, not to mention sing or make a confession of their faith, just as we've all done today, I think what Paul is forbidding, what he's saying is that women were not permitted to participate in the weighing or discerning process since that would put them in a position of authority over a man, especially if that man happens to be their husband. You can envision a scenario where a woman's husband would stand up and prophesy and then the woman would want to chime in a little bit and ask a few questions and maybe put her husband in the hot seat since everyone's discerning him at this point. Paul says no. Women ought not to have that position of authority in the church while they're free to pray or prophesy uh, as long as they wear their symbol of authority on their head. He says here that they cannot participate in that weighing or discerning process. And this accords with what Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 2, when he says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. There again, Paul isn't insisting on total silence of women. Like, ladies, you need to put tape over your mouth so you can't say anything at church. No, he's saying women ought not to teach or, or exercise authority over a man. It's a particular office, a particular, a particular function. And so when asked, well, what can a woman do in church? I would say anything an unordained man can do in church. Since women biblically are not, uh, do not meet the requirement for a preaching or teaching position of authority then that is what is uh, forbidding them, not their natural gifts or talents or the fact that they have the Holy Spirit. But Paul isn't just saying this because he was a first century Jew. He supports it with the teaching of Scripture, as he says, as he references the teaching of the law. He says they ought to remain silent as the law says. Now, Paul will often quote from the Old Testament to support what he's being, what's being said, but it's interesting that he doesn't tell us what he's quoting from. He just says, the law says it. So we're free to guess. Well, what part of the law are you referring to, Paul? Well, I don't think it's that difficult because Paul has already referenced a particular portion of the Old Testament in the same context in chapter 11. You may recall back there, he summarizes the teaching of Genesis 1 and 2 about the creation of male and female. And he said back there in chapter 11, For a man ought not to cover his head, 
since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. There Paul is referencing what we read there in Genesis chapter 2. The creation of Eve for Adam. And he's showing there that in this created order, since man was created first, that man bears authority, a, a husband has authority over his wife. It's rooted in creation. It's not something that we just made up. But it is part of God's order that he established in creation, and thus we ought to submit to it. So likewise here, I think that's what Paul is referencing when he's referring to the law saying that a woman ought not to speak in church. That is, in an authoritative manner. But then Paul, it's clear to note that he doesn't forbid women learning. He's not opposed to women learning and being built up. As he's already said, all of us need to learn. All of us need to be built up. But he wants them to do it in an orderly manner. He says if they desire to learn, if they have any questions that they want to ask of their husband, then let them ask their husband at home so that they could learn there. And it's interesting, there's uh, one scholar that has suggested that since the, the Jewish synagogues in the first century, the seating arrangements in the, in the synagogue were that men would sit on one side and the women would sit on the other. And this scholar has suggested that the Church of Corinth did the same exact thing. That, the, that is, they were segregated between men and women. And this, by the way, happened throughout the Middle Ages Puritans did this, they would be shocked to see men and women sitting together in the way that you are right now. But imagine that if, in fact, that was the case, if the women were all sitting on one side and the men were sitting on the other side and a wife had a question to ask of her husband, it might be a little disruptive. That might be a little chaotic for a wife to say, hey, honey, what did he mean when he said that? Paul says, no, ask him at home. If, in fact, that was their seating arrangement, I think that gives a lot of, kind of fills out the, the color of what was going on there. But I think what the, the, the point being is that all of this, as Paul says, is not just what I'm saying. This is a command of the Lord. The reason why we worship God is because of the nature of God himself. We, order, we worship God in an orderly manner because he's a God of peace, not a God of confusion. And so Paul then turns in verse 36, anticipating the response of the Corinthians. And you know what their response would be. Not just to this command about women, but to all the commands about speaking in tongues. As he limits them to only two or three at the most. Or prophets saying you need to take your turn when you prophesy and let others weigh what is said. You can imagine their response. Who do you think you are? We like to do things our own way. We were perfectly fine and happy worshiping the way we were until you came along with all of these regulations. Well, that's why Paul says, were you the guys who came up with scripture? Did it originate with you? Or are you the only ones to whom scripture has been written? Well, clearly no. Those are rhetorical questions where the obvious answer is no. They didn't write the Bible, and they weren't the only ones the Bible was written to. They're part of the church universal, and therefore they must fall in line with the faith once delivered to all the saints. 
And it's important to note here that when Paul is, is giving this, anticipating this objection and asking these rhetorical questions, are you the only ones who came up with the Bible? Are you the only ones to whom it pertains? That he's not just talking about the issue of women in church, but really about everything he's been addressing regarding orderly worship going all the way back uh, to uh, chapter 11. So this would include proper attire in worship. This would include his regulations about the Lord's Supper. This would include uh, his gift, his, talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit or orderly worship within the church. All of this pertains to these rhetorical questions. You didn't write the Bible, and so you need to obey and submit to what is being said. And so he gives a criteria, a test, about uh, uh, whether to determine whether you are a true prophet or a true spiritual person. He's already done this, by the way, with wisdom and with knowledge. He says, if anyone thinks that they're wise, let him become a fool. He says, if anyone imagines that they're knowledgeable, they don't know anything. And so it is here for those, as in Corinth, who thought themselves as prophets, who thought of themselves as spiritual people who were above the fray. Paul says, if anyone thinks that he's a prophet or he's spiritual, he's going to agree with me. He's going to recognize the fact that what I'm telling you is not just the opinion of Paul, but it is the very command of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. But on the flip side, Verse 38, if anyone does not recognize what I'm telling you, then they ought not to be recognized as a prophet. It is self-invalidation. If they disagree with Paul, despite the fact that they claim to be spiritual, Paul says they're not spiritual. They don't have the Holy Spirit like I do. And so in verse 39, he sums up the whole of this chapter when he says, earnestly desire to prophesy, that is because prophecy is better, it's It's more suited for public worship because it's intelligible, but also don't forbid speaking in tongues. He doesn't forbid it. He just puts stipulations and requirements on it. That is, it it must be interpreted. But summing everything up, everything from the head coverings to the Lord's Supper to the gifts to orderly worship, he says everything ought to be done in spiritual worship decently and in order. Decently, that is, in a fitting, appropriate manner. Orderly, that is, structured. The same term is used of, uh, uh, in a military sense, where the troops all march in order. Paul spoke of us as, as, a, as an army when he says, if somebody plays an indistinct sound of the bugle, how will the army be ready for battle? Well, the church is the church militant, and we ought to do things in an orderly manner. So everything ought to be done decently, And in order, why? Because that's how the Holy Spirit likes it. And so to sum up, idolatry, worshiping God God the way we want to, is all about you. It's all about your needs. You do it because it makes you feel good. But as we saw in our reading, in in our call to worship today from Psalm 115, there's a consequence to idolatry. That those who make the idols... Become like them. They have eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear. They are ineffective. And ultimately, idolatry will render you in that same manner. But as we see here, true, heartfelt, genuine, spirit-led worship is a reflection of the nature of God himself. 
And as we who are many come together as one body to worship our triune God for the purpose of building one another up and not just ourselves, there's an added benefit. We are conformed more and more into the image of God. We reflect God as we worship him in spirit and in truth as he conforms us more and more into the image of Christ. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you have enabled us to be able to worship God anywhere, anytime, as long as we do it in spirit and in truth. Indeed, you said the Father is searching for those who will do that. And so, Lord, we pray that you would grant to us humility, that we would be able to submit to your word and worship you in the way in which you have commanded us knowing that we will derive the benefit of not only building one another up, but also that we will be conformed more and more into the image of your Son. And we pray that you would hasten that day in which the Lord will return and complete this process that you have began in us. Until then, O Lord, grant to us hearts of gratitude and perseverance. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.